Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of this book interview podcast done in collaboration with the Asian Review of Books and the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview both fiction and nonfiction authors writing in, around, and about Asia and the Asia-Pacific region. Visitors around the world travel to Europe to see the tall spires and stained glass windows of the continent's Gothic cathedrals in Cologne, in Milan, in Florence, in York, and in Paris, among others. The trappings of Gothic architecture have become shorthand for quote-unquote medieval Europe. Yet, in Stealing from the Saracens, How Islamic Architecture Shaped Europe, Diana Dark investigates the Islamic origins of Gothic architecture, tracing its history through pre-Islamic Syria through the Islamic empires to, to the tall European cathedrals constructed between the 12th and 17th centuries. Diana is an Arabist and cultural expert who has lived and worked in the Middle East for over 30 years. Among her better-known books are The Merchant of Syria, A History of Survival, and My House in Damascus, An Inside View of the Syrian Crisis. Today, Diana and I will talk about the origins of what we consider to be Gothic architecture, how those styles came to Europe, how this history of cultural intellectual exchange may have gotten lost, and what we miss when we code something as fully, as fully European, fully Islamic, or fully any kind of culture. So, Diana, perhaps it's best to start with some definitions. Could you define what Gothic architecture is? What are some of, some of its common features, and what are some of the most famous examples of this style? Okay, well, maybe the way to start is when we say Gothic architecture, we should realize that um, the, the word itself, Gothic, it only even came into common use in the 16th century. Before that, it was just known as French work. And... <laughs> Uh, so the, in terms of the styles, um, uh, mainly the pointed arch is, is the defining feature. Um, trefoil arches, uh, inside and outside, uh, ribbed vaulting, um, stained glass windows, flying buttresses. And so all of our um, major cathedrals across Europe, the famous Gothic cathedrals, um, you know, Notre Dame, of course, uh, the famous one that's come into everybody's consciousness because of the big fire. And uh, in, 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 uh, in England, where I am, we've got uh, Westminster Abbey. And then, of course, we've got um, all the Gothic revival styles like the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben, you know, which are, of course, the seat of government. So, so these things become very much part of the national identity. And, and what came before it? I mean, so, so what did Gothic architecture replace? Well, again, you see, these are these are the terms that we use these days. So Romanesque, so-called, um, is is a term that actually uh, also entered entered uh, the English language remarkably late. Uh, you know, incredibly late. It was only actually in the nineteenth century, believe it or not. Um, and it's used to define the type of architecture with round, semicircular arches. So it's a kind of blend of of Roman and and Byzantine, and Pretty much um, all of medieval Europe was covered in Romanesque churches um, before Gothic arrived. And, and in terms of time scale, um, you've got a huge range. People, some people say it began, um, you know, as early as the sixth century, and some, and it ended round about the eleventh uh, when when Gothic started to, to take over. And, and most churches, Romanesque churches, the way it gradually happened was that. Um, Gothic chunks of churches, if you like, were sort of, you know, so 
something would happen, a fire or whatever, and then a, a part of that church that had been Romanesque would get rebuilt, so just the nave or just the choir or one particular part of it would get rebuilt in the new Gothic style. So then you get these sort of hybrid buildings, which are part Romanesque and part Gothic. And of course, I think as you as you noted, um, a lot of this, a lot of these definitions were kind of added after the fact. And I think as your book goes through all the different cathedrals and examples of Gothic architecture, there's often some differences between you know the styles in different countries. So the Gothic architecture you see in France is different from what you see in Italy, which is different from what you see in Spain. I guess could you go into some of those, let's call them regional differences. Yes, I mean those are um, regional differences, but but the, the, they do share that the the main um, the main characteristics of of Gothic. Um, so you know they all share the pointed arches um, and and the trefoil arches and and the some of them have got much more elaborate um, tracery in the spires. For example, in in Spain, uh, cathedrals like Burgos um, are very very intricate and and, and delicate and. and uh, and so these these are a slightly different styles, um, but um, the um, um, otherwise I would say that um, you know most most of the styles are similar, and and the the, the main uh, point actually is is structurally the pointed arch enabled buildings to go higher and higher. Um, it was much stronger than than the than the rounded Roman arch. And and so, of course, this led to a sort of competitive streak, if you like, where buildings got higher and higher and higher, almost um, different bishops in different cities competing with each other, uh, wanting to have the highest one, a bit like Dubai with its highest skyscrapers in a way. And then, of course, you got to the point where they went so high that they collapsed, like, like Beauvais Cathedral. And flying buttresses uh, really had to be invented in order to hold these buildings up because they became so tall they became unstable and wouldn't simply wouldn't have stood up without the flying buttresses yes i i it's funny you mentioned dubai because i was going to say this sounds very familiar to the to the way that modern cities compete for you know the world's tallest skyscraper absolutely yeah yes i mean i've spent time in dubai i, I saw i saw how everybody wants to be the biggest and the best and one of the things that struck me in the researches of the book was that even back in the middle ages it was much the same uh, you know, and so um, the, it is, in a way, a story of competing uh, rivalries within the church, and um, you know, um, it's a, it's a power it's a power statement basically. My monastery is bigger than your monastery, and and Cluny, Cluny three as it's known, um, uh, Cluny being the the sort of powerhouse of the Benedictines, so the most powerful. Um, Christian, um, you know, monastic sect in 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 Europe. Cleaning three was the biggest building in the whole of Europe um, up until the Renaissance. I mean, we're talking massive power here, and and of course, you know, um, uh, the Benedictines were in rivalry with with Rome and the Pope at that time, so they were busy sponsoring um, churches along the pilgrimage route to Santiago de Compostela as a rival pilgrimage route and so they built their Cluniac shrines with the pointed arches that they had uh, had copied from first from Monte Cassino and Monte Cassino had copied it from Amalfi 
and Amalfi had brought it in from um, from Cairo on the Ibn Taloon Mosque. So <laughs> it, it finds its way in, and then and then once Clooney has it, the fashion is set, you know, and everybody everybody wants to copy Clooney. It's like the you know the big star <laughs> that everybody wants to be like, be like the sort of top dog Benedictine. Well, th- this is actually a pretty good segue to my to my next two questions. So I'll, I'll ask the first one. Um, so what is it about Gothic architecture that makes it similar to Islamic architecture? What are the common kind of um, styles, structures that, that, that you see that allow you to make this connection? Right. Well, okay. Well, so starting with the most obvious one, it is the pointed arch. Um, so the pointed arch, um, we first see it in um, an, an Omeyyad building. In fact, the very first political statement by the Omeyyads, the first Islamic dynasty, um, the Dome of the Rock, built in, in Jerusalem in, in 690. And inside the Dome of the Rock, in, in the double arcade around, around the rock, which forms the, um, the sort of focal point of the building, um, our pointed arches appear for the first time in, in a very slight form. Also, um, trefoil arches appear up in the dome uh, inside, again, the, the Dome of the Rock. And, and nowhere, uh, you know, earlier Roman or Byzantine architecture did not have pointed arches and it did not have trefoil arches. So these things, uh, which become the key thing all over Gothic, you know, inside and out, um, are, are first seen in the Umayyad, uh, ca- capital also in in, in Damascus, uh, you start to see them, and in the uh, Umayyad palaces. So Khirbat uh, al-Mafjar, which is one of the best researched ones, uh, which is in what's currently the occupied West Bank near near Jericho, uh, that has decorative trefoil arches um, in in a lot of its um, plaster work and and in the architecture, um, and so so these are very. Um, uh, you know, absolutely key. And then under the Abbasids, um, the pointed arch gets developed more more strongly, and um, and it starts to become the defining feature of Islamic architecture. Uh, and then finds its way into Cairo. I already mentioned the Ibn Taloon Mosque. Um, so so uh, Ibn Taloon himself was um, sent to be governor in Cairo um, from Iraq from from, from Samarra. Where, where the pointed arches were also starting to become prevalent. And so he brought the style with him to Cairo. And that is where it was first seen by Italian merchants trading. And, and in your book, you go back further than that as well, right, to explore the, the, pre-Islam, the, the pre-Islamic architecture in places like Syria. Oh, yes, of course. Now, this is hugely important. It's really quite a big chapter in the book um, because obviously – uh, you know, early Christian architecture, the huge field of experimentation of it was essentially historic Syria. I mean, unsurprisingly, because, uh, you know, the whole of the Eastern Mediterranean uh, was historic Syria, which, of course, included Jerusalem, the birthplace of Christ. So all, all the uh, early developments of, of church architecture took place in that part of the world. The very first uh, Thing that we can identify as a church was just a house. It's known as the House Church, uh, and that was in Dura Europos, which is in um, on the Euphrates, a multicultural city on the Euphrates, and that was third century. 
And then it's only in the sort of fourth, fifth and sixth centuries that we start to get what we would today recognize as the earliest forms of, of church architecture. And the best place to see this is, is in Syria, in tragically what is today Idlib province, the rebel held Idlib province. So it's still, still the war is ongoing there. But there's a collection there of hundreds of early Byzantine cities um, with over 2,000 churches. And collectively, they show the transition from Roman pagan architecture into early Christian Byzantine architecture. And that's where you see the very first Romanesque church. Um, you know, that, well, there are several of them. The best preserved happens to be uh, a church called Kalb Lausi, which has got the twin towers flanking the monumental arch. And it's built as a, as a, a church on the pilgrimage route to St. Simeon's, because St. Simeon's Basilica was the Santiago de Compostela of its day. It, I mean, pilgrims went from all over Europe, from, from England as well. Uh, they walked all the way, or on, on horseback, um, walked all the way to St. Simeon's Basilica, which is um, west of Aleppo, um, to pay their respects to, to this most, it was the most important shrine in the whole of Christendom um, until Iosophia was built about 50 years later in Constantinople. So, so how do these architectural styles, these these techniques, um, how do they make their way to Europe? You've already mentioned one, which is this kind of keeping up with the Joneses um, between between the major cities of Europe. Um, but but this is all part of some, I think, a wider process of intellectual exchange between Europe and the Islamic world, right? Oh yes. Well, I mean, before the whole uh, thing about the rival, um, you know, abbots from their monasteries that I mentioned by Amalfi in Cairo. Um, before that, uh, of course, the major place through which it en entered was, was Muslim Spain. And, uh, you know, again, historically, you just have to, I mean, we're talking 8th century here. So when the, um, when the Umayyads uh, dynasty came to an end in Damascus, and the Abbasids basically um, killed off the rival uh, clan, um, one Umayyad prince escaped, Abdurrahman, and he made his way all the way across North Africa and and established his own dynasty in Spain, which was modeled on the Umayyad styles of Damascus and of Syria. So he brought the trefoil arch, the pointed arch, and the horseshoe arch, which had already started in, in Damascus in, in, a, in a slight, very slight form. You can see it in the Damascus Umayyad Mosque. He brought all those styles into uh, Cordoba, which he made his capital. And when he built the Cordoba Mesquita, you can see it now. It, it's, it's got um, trefoil arches around the, um, the mihrab, the most, you know, the most holy part of the mosque. It's got the most fabulous ribbed vaulting um, in the ceiling, which, um, again, was, was, was the earliest form of ribbed vaulting on European soil because the, the Masons had a phenomenal understanding of geometry and skill in stonework, which they brought with them from Syria. And the reason for that is that Syria is covered in limestone, uh, white limestone and black basalt. And so stone masonry in, in Syria is, a, is, an, is as old as the hills, literally. And, and so the, the Muslim masons, um, that, that um, they flooded in. Uh, there had been a lot of exiles, refugees, if you like, in today's language, um, that had been expelled from Syria when the Abbasids took over. 
And when Abdurrahman set up his new um, his new dynasty in, in Cordoba, he put out a call to all Syrians who wanted to come to, to, to him and support him in Andalusia. So craftsmen would have come and, and um, you know, were involved there in the building of the Cordoba Mesquita. So it, it's major, um, you know, the craftsmen came in. And it's worth mentioning, actually, that um, later with the abbots and their rival um, their rivalries, they all imported the workers as well, the craftsmen, and very often imported the raw materials too, because um, uh, you know they, they were simply the best, and we know this for a fact because they recorded it in their own abbey histories. They actually say, you know, we brought in the workmen because we didn't have anybody skilled enough to do this work. So this is how their skills gradually passed over then to to local Christians. So your 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 book kind of opens at the end, in a manner of speaking, with um, Christopher Wren's kind of projection of the Gothic architectural styles of the day in favor of you know a new style and returning to I think he's I think you phrase it or I'm paraphrasing but returning to the old style of the Saracens when designing um, the new Saint Paul's Cathedral. I, I guess why do you start your book there? Well. Um, this is this is a good moment for me to explain the title of the book, actually, and the front cover, um, because it's all very deliberate and carefully chosen. So the front cover shows the inside of the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, built by Christopher Wren. Um, and the reason for that is that Wren said at the end of his life, I have used the Saracen vaulting in the dome at St. Paul's because it was the best. And he explains why, and he draws diagrams explaining how it is the, the superior um, type of vaulting. And he says, because the, um, the, the, the Saracens, the Moors, the Arabians, he calls them all these different things, um, he said they, they were the most advanced in geometry and science, and so they, they understood it best. So that, that technique, uh, Wren freely admits, was, the, was a Saracen vaulting, and he, Wren writes in his um, memoirs that um, what we call the Gothic style should rightly be called the Saracen style. And he, um, when he disputes the term, actually, he, he, he says, he says, from the lightness of its work, the excessive boldness of its elevations, delicacy, profusion and extravagant fancy of its ornaments, it could only be attributed to the Moors or what is the same thing to the Arabians or Saracens. So this is what he says uh, are the sort of characteristics that he recognizes as coming from further east. And although he never went uh, to, to, you know, he, he, Wren never went beyond France, but he saw an awful lot of diagrams and um, he read avidly um, the accounts of travelers who had been further east. To, to Istanbul and, and to Syria. And so he was always asking questions and was open to new influences. So he, he took the best from wherever he could find it and synthesized it then into, into you know, the best thing he could. So as, as you read through the book and, and look at the many examples you cite, um, a reader kind of has the thought, wait, is it all Islamic influenced? And, and, and it's... And, and it's somewhat obvious too. You kind of look at it and you go, "Wait, it totally is Islamic influenced." So, I guess in as you were doing research for the book, I guess what are some of the more surprising links that that you uncovered? 
Yes, well, um, I already knew, obviously, about the pointed arches and, and the trefoil arches um, and the ribbed vaulting and the twin towers, all, all, of, all of these things. Um, the things that were completely unexpected were um, the whole stained glass connections. I hadn't fully taken on board that Syria was the world leader in, in glass. I mean, Raqqa, that we now associate with ISIS and all those horrors, under the Abbasids, um, Haruna Rashid uh, was the caliph then from a, a Thousand and One Nights fame. Um, Raqqa was the center of the Syrian glass industry because it was the perfect place for the raw materials of the pebbles of the Euphrates and this local plant, a salty uh, marsh plant um, called Ushnan, and that was used as the flux, the soda, in um in, in the making of the raw materials. And so uh, Syrian, uh, the Syrian glass industry was the world leader, undisputed. And, and so when, uh, when the Crusaders came uh, to this part of the world and, and discovered the quality of the glass, this is what they then shipped back into Europe um, and what it forms the raw material in all the early stained glass windows. And People have done studies now, um, you know, scientific analyses of the glass. And um, between 1200 and 1400, most of the glass in our uh, European Gothic cathedrals has been found to be of what they call the Islamic composition. So it's nothing to do with Roman glass at all. All that raw material came from um, from Syria. And, and then when, when the glass industry was destroyed by Tamerlane, the Mongol invasion into Syria, and, and he uh, d- sacked Damascus and took all the craft, craftsmen back to Samarkand, um, he, was, um, he was left with um, uh, um, uh, the Venetians, basically, uh, then came to the fore. I mean, Damascus was no longer on the scene, so the Venetians... Had, had seen these techniques and um, borrowed and, and took the techniques and the raw materials um, and then, of course, developed the monopoly of, of the glass industry. And, and recipes, glass recipes from Venice actually still specified, centuries later, the cinders of Syria because of this very special plant that grew in Syria. They, they recognized this made the best quality. So that was a surprising discovery. And the other one was the whole connection with heraldry, you know, shields and and family coats of arms and all of that. But this, again, the Crusaders had seen it, this this whole business of um, using uh, symbols on your your helmet, for example. Um, They saw in in Syria that Saracen knights, if we're going to call them that, you know, were were playing, uh, having jousting tournaments on horseback with blunt javelins. And they were wearing on their helmets symbols like the fleur-de-lis, for example, was first seen, believe it or not, on, on, the, on the helmet of Nur ad-Din. And yet now it's um, you know, the symbol that we all associate with France because the Crusaders took these ideas back and used them differently, basically, in Europe. They used them to sort of make hierarchy things and, and um, inheritance things uh, and, and turned it into a sort of massive field of, um, you know, in a way that, that uh, the, the Muslims didn't, basically. For them, they just used them because they liked the, the, the designs. I mean, they didn't, um, it, it didn't have the whole, the whole um, 
uh, hierarchical inheritance backstory that that um, that heraldry developed in uh, in Europe. So speaking of France, um, in your introduction, you note that the book was inspired by the immediate aftermath of the fire at, at Notre Dame, um, especially when you noted the Islamic origins of much of what we see as kind of iconic um, in that cathedral. I guess you know what what happened when when you noted Notre Dame's kind of Islamic connections? Well, this is the thing. I mean, actually, if it hadn't been for that fire at Notre Dame, I would never have written this book because um, uh, it was it was the fire and the world's reaction to that fire and France's reaction to that fire when the you know, great cry went up, um, you know, oh, our national identity is going up in flames. You know, the whole country went into mass mourning. And, and, you know, I mean, France is a secular country. I mean, you know, the church-going population is extremely small. So to suddenly discover that they had this massive attachment to Notre Dame, in a way, was was kind of, you know, um, it, 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 it was a sort of dissonance there. But I was, I was very uh, struck by my goodness. You know, how can you claim this as your national identity, as your creation, the thing that symbolizes your, your wonderful... French culture, when actually most of the elements that form Notre Dame all came from from the Islamic world, from much, much further east. So it was because I realized the level of ignorance about this that I thought, well, you know, perhaps I should, um, you know, set the record straight or do something as a, as a kind of corrective. And it started off where I just literally put out a tweet with the photograph of uh, Notre Dame and of Kalblazi, this church with its twin towers back in Idlib province in Syria. And I just put a small comment saying Notre Dame's ancestor stands on a hilltop in Syria and dates, you know, dates to the fifth century. Um, and the response to that was was colossal. And again, I was really surprised. I thought, you know, people clearly don't, don't seem to know anything about this. So I then wrote a, a blog on my own website explaining uh, a bit more about all of this, and um, and I was immediately contacted by Middle East Eye and a couple of other outlets to say, can we reblog this immediately? <laughs> and so it was when I saw the level of interest in this that I that I thought, my goodness, you know, I was just amazed that that so few people seem to know all this stuff. Um, and that was followed, incidentally, then by a, a chance, a family holiday just a couple of weeks later in Cordoba and Granada. And again, I was really struck in Spain by how there is very little acknowledgement of the Muslim backstory. So you could go into the Cordoba Mesquita these days, which is playing sort of cathedral type music. It's got crucifixes everywhere in all the arches. It's got 42 chapels around the outside. I mean, they are doing their best to, to you know, obliterate any Muslim connection. And yet they're sort of adopting it as, oh, this is ours. This is our wonderful um, heritage. <laughs> so, again, it's a sort of a disconnect, if you like. And uh, so it was on coming back from that holiday, I happened to be having lunch with my uh, with my publisher who was trying to interest me in writing a different book. Um, and I said, no, 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 I don't mind. I'm not really interested in, in that. And I carried on ranting about um, Notre Dame and Cordoba. And he said, OK, well, why don't you write a book about that then? So I thought, wow, okay, well, I was only going to write an article or two about it, but if you're serious, then yes, I will. And so within two weeks, he'd sent me a contract, and off I went, basically. Um, and so 
it was terrific. I mean, I hadn't appreciated how much architecture has actually been a part of my life, um, going right back, you know, back to childhood almost. And, um, uh, you know, then, of course, having to restore my own house in Damascus for three years in the old city, that deepened my knowledge and appreciation of it. I then did an MA in Islamic art and architecture, um, you know, because I was, became so interested in it. And all of this kind of came together uh, suddenly in this book, which, as I said, I, I would never have even have written if it hadn't been for that fire at Notre Dame. So this this leads into my, my next question, which is a lot of the the, the trappings of Gothic architecture um, are increasingly, or increasingly they are, they are coded as European. You know, I think of like how many books, how many movies, um, even ones, you know, that are set in kind of, you know, fantasy settings use Gothic architecture to show kind of a quote unquote European influence. Um, everyone knows that if you, if you see a steeple, if you see stained glass windows, that means medieval Europe, possibly France. Um, I know it's not quite the same thing, but you see uh, something that's neo-Gothic and you know that means Victorian England or some setting inspired from that. I guess, how do you think that these, you know, architectural styles become coded in this way? And, and what do we miss when we, I guess, when we do code them as fully European or fully from, from one culture or another? Yes, it's a very interesting question, that, isn't it? And, and I think... Um... Well, I think in the first instance, I, I have to blame our education system um, because, uh, you know, I mean, I, I grew up, I mean, my mother's German. I was lucky enough as a child to spend, uh, you know, most of my summer holidays as a family. We, we would tour around Europe. So I was very familiar with Gothic architecture, um, all the cathedrals, great cathedrals of Europe. I'd seen them all as a, as a child, and I just assumed that they were they were, you know, European, and this it had all been invented there. And then we had television programs like um, Kenneth Clark's Civilization, one of the first sort of big documentary series on the BBC. And Kenneth Clark was looking at, you know, what he called civilization, and what was it? It was, you know, Gothic and the Renaissance. It was all Europe, as if, you know, there was no other civilization. So I grew up thinking that Europe was the centre of the universe, and that pretty much everything had been invented in Europe. Um, but then at university, I, I made a decision to study Arabic. And then, if you like, my, my horizons were opened for the first time. And I realized, my goodness, you know, even what we call Greek, actually, the Greeks got their ideas for a lot of this stuff from, from further east, you know, that you can just keep tracking it eastwards, basically. And people are just starting to realize this, you know, the extent to which everything builds on everything else. So Something like Notre Dame, it doesn't just pop out like some, you know, virgin miracle birth. It, 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 there's a massive backstory there, um, most of which, you know, the, the clues for which all lead to the East. It's just that, obviously, um, European architects have synthesized all these elements into something new, but you can recognize there all the things that they built on. And, and to my mind, this, this really enriches... Um, my appreciation definitely of gothic architecture so you know even here where where i am in england you know our local parish church is is a is a blend of you know earlier um well sort of 12th 13th 14th century things and it i can you know, now when i look at the architecture of it and the different arches and the uh, 
the trefoil arches and the quatrefoil arches and the styles and the ribbed vaulting, all of that, it really deepens my understanding of it to, to, to realize, my goodness, you know, this, these styles have evolved over centuries and centuries. Um, and, and so it, it, um, it gives me a, a real appreciation of multiculturalism and how vital it is, really, that we keep our cultures open and uh, acknowledge the debts of others because everything builds on everything else and everybody synthesizes them you know the best of what they see in into something slightly new and that's how everything inches forward but the more influences you've got coming in the richer the richer the, the creation and i think with that that's a perfect place to end our discussion of stealing from the saracens how islamic architecture shaped europe um, Diana, where can people find your work? And is there anything that you'd like? What, what are you working on next? <laughs> I'm still so uh, obsessed with this subject. I can't let it go. I mean, I mean, every pretty much every week I'm finding something new. It's just so much more. I mean, my book, um, which is really quite long, it's 477 pages, and it's um, the publishers have done a brilliant job with the production of it you know it's got beautiful color illustrations throughout um and and i'm really pleased with how they've done it um but you can get it um you can get it uh everywhere you know amazon and all, all good bookshops and if you go to hearst uh the publishers hearst's own website and put in the code saracens25 they'll give you a 25 percent discount um free postage in the uk Five pounds postage in Europe and seven pounds fifty postage everywhere else in the world. So that's that's pretty good, actually. I think that beats Amazon. Well, it's a pretty good deal. Yeah. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R I Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts, including. Uh, its review of Stealing from the Saracens. You can follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Thank you again, Diana, for joining me. Thank you very much for inviting me.